Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. We're very uh, grateful and thankful to be able to have Brother B.J. Clark with us, Director of Memphis School of Preaching, for 17 years, I believe, and married to Tish uh, for 40 years. And uh, we've been praying fervently and diligently for her, and uh, so we're just so very thankful that uh, she's doing so well with her health at this time. And Michael is here, his son. He drove him and taking good care of his dad. He's going to be talking to us about the one true church. You know, our theme for our fall series is sharing wisdom about. And so uh, I talked with Brother uh, BJ back several months ago and gave him two or three options. And he said, I really like that one. So we're looking forward to uh, his lesson tonight. And he's going to be back with us for our fall seminar. And that's going to be November the 3 through 5. November 3 through 5, he's going to be back with us. I wish you a good evening. It's very, very good to be with you. I am getting over a bout with Bell's palsy. Two weeks ago tomorrow morning, they diagnosed me with that. And some of you may have experienced that in your own life or in the lives of your loved ones. Just temporary uh, facial paralysis on the left side. Can't blink my left eye like I'm supposed to or close it all the way like I want to. So that's why the patch. I don't want to go full pirate on you during the uh, message or become Nick Fury and summon the the Avengers, but uh, I will will do my best to be able to handle the lights and uh, and the air, but I'm glad to be able to speak more clearly today than I have been in the last few weeks, and so uh, thankful to my son for driving me here so I could uh, get to have this appointment with you. And also, I cannot thank you enough for the prayers you've offered on behalf of Tish, because uh, those prayers have made a huge, huge difference. And uh, she is scheduled to take her last treatment November 3rd, and they say after that they'll do scans and see what they can uh, determine from that point on and hope that nothing ever tries to grow back again that shouldn't be. So uh, very, very appreciative for your prayers. It means so much. The title, The One True Church, is certain to cause offense to some. The idea that there's only one of anything in our day and time, our broad-minded age, is considered to be very narrow-minded One, only one. And then when we're talking about the church, the one true church implies that there's only one church that's not false. Now think about that. In our broad-minded age, it's hard to say that without really ruffling some people's feathers. And the question is, did God say that or are we just saying it? And how should we say it when we talk about it with our friends and neighbors and and loved ones, what should we say when it comes to this subject of the one true church? 
Let's take the words and define them each one by one. Let's do it backwards. First, the word church, you know, comes from two Greek words, ek, meaning out of, and kaleo, called out of. Ekklesia is the church is called out of darkness into his marvelous light, as we read in Colossians chapter 1, 12 and 13, and 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9. And so we're talking about the called out group of people. But notice the one true called out group of people. Now the word true obviously means the opposite of false. Something that is true is indeed the opposite of that would be untrue. Now here's the question. Is it possible for a group of people to think they've been called out into the presence of God and his service only to discover that they were basing their thoughts on something not true? Well, to answer that question with scripture, I'd invite your attention to the words of our Lord in Matthew chapter 7, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he depicts a judgment day scenario that includes the following. Many will say to me in that day, he said there in Matthew seven twenty two, many will say to me in that day, what will they say? Lord, Lord, stop right there. These aren't atheists. They would not be calling him Lord and having done the things that they're going to do in their lifetime if they were atheists. Now, it's true that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord on the day of judgment, Philippians 2, 9 to 11. But these people described here believed he was the Lord because before he came back. They acknowledged his deity, his position as Lord, so much so that the Bible says, they will say to him, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? They will say in their view, they had in his name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. Lord, you know us. We're that group you called out to be your followers and we're your true followers. And that Jesus will look at that very same group of individuals And say to them, what? In verse 23, then will I profess unto them, the them being those who called him Lord, did many wonderful things on his behalf, preached about him, prophesied about him, and and claimed to be doing so many things by his authority. And Jesus will look at that same group of people, religious people, mind you, and he'll look at them and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now that gets my attention. Because that tells me I can be very religious. So religious that I am preaching about him. Working on his behalf. Doing things that I think he wants me to do. Only to find out on the day of judgment my service has not been true. It has been false. That's alarming. And it causes me to want to do some investigation. Is there any way I can know that I'm really a true follower of Jesus, a true member of that called out group? That's what we're going to discuss. But look at verse 21 as we get the answer from the Lord himself. 
Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. There's Jesus himself saying, just because you call me Lord doesn't mean that you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Look at it. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But does Jesus ever identify the ones who will certainly enter the kingdom of heaven? Fortunately for us, he does. He says, he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. If you are ever asked about who the only ones going to heaven are, may I suggest something? That a good way to answer that question with the Lord's lips rather than your own is to say, you know, I wouldn't dare try to give you my personal answer to that question because I'm not the judge. But would you agree that you and I need to listen to what Jesus said about it, what the Lord said about it? And if they say yes to that, then take them lovingly to Matthew seven twenty one and show them where Jesus said, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. True or false? If someone does the will of the Father in heaven, they'll be going to heaven. Yes or no? So when would be a good time for us to sit down and study together what the will of the Father in heaven is so we can both make sure we've done that? That is an approach that takes them to the scriptures and hopefully opens up the door for more Bible study. And so I know that there is a true individual, a true group of individuals who are following the Lord's teaching. Now, they're not perfect people, but the pattern itself is what's true. Our failure to measure up to the truth doesn't mean the truth isn't the truth. It just means that we haven't measured up to it in our own individual or collective lives. But the truth is there. We just need to look to the pattern for the one true church that follows the one true pattern. Now, the word one is pretty self-explanatory. It's more than zero, and uh, two or more is not one. So, one means what? You know, it's interesting that no one ever has any difficulty whatsoever understanding the word one when it comes to uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number uh, 4 where it says there's one spirit. And verse 5 says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's above all and through all and in you all. We understand what one means when it comes to the God of heaven. We understand what it means when it comes to the Lord and the Spirit. But for some reason, that statement in verse 4 of Ephesians 4, there is one body, sometimes people trip over. Because what does Paul call that body in Ephesians 4, 4? What does he call that body in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23? Listen to what he said. He said, God has put all things under his feet, that's the feet of Christ, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, the church. What is that church, Paul? Which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And so there's one body, one church, And notice the very word, the one true church. Jesus did not say in John 14, 6, 
I am a way, a truth, a life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Now, some folks don't think that's broad enough. You remember, some of you old-timers will certainly remember it. No offense intended, I remember it too. Larry King Live, it was a program on television years ago, CNN, Larry King Live. He had a preacher from Houston on his program that speaks to a packed arena every Sunday. And he asked him about whether someone who was a Jew who didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, could be saved. And Mr. Osteen said, Larry, I'm not in the judging business. He then asked him about whether Muslims could be saved without embracing and accepting and following Jesus Christ. And again, Mr. Osteen said that he wasn't in the judging business. He wasn't going to give an answer to that. May I ask you this? If the Lord himself had been a guest on Larry King Live, and Larry King had said, is it true that you believe that only those who come through you can get to the Father? Is it true that you have been going around saying that you're the only way to the Father, that there's no other way to get to the Father but by you? Is it true that you really believe that? May I ask you lovingly tonight, dear friends, if Larry King had asked Jesus the Christ, are you the only way to the Father, and must a Jew believe in you in order to be saved by the Father, tell me, what would Jesus have said? He would have said the very same thing he already said. He wouldn't have shied away from it, backed away from it, and acted like, whoa, that does sound pretty narrow, doesn't it? Okay, there might be other ways. No, 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 no. He's the way. There's no other foundation under heaven given among men whereby men must be saved or in fact, you combine Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12. There's none of the name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And then 1 Corinthians 3.11 is what I was trying to get to a moment ago. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid Jesus Christ. So he's the one, the only one. So here it is. There's one true church but that raises the question, now that we've given the definition, let's talk about the origination of the one true church. When did the one true church originate? In the mind of God. Before God ever said, let there be light, do you know what he'd already decided? Before the words, let there be light, were ever spoken in Genesis 1-3, God had already decided, let there be a church. How do I know this? In the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, zoom in on verse 10 and 11. Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. And what do we find the inspired writer telling us here? Paul tells us that uh, the intent was that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church 
the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm sad to stand here before you and tell you that there is a commentary put out by one of our Brotherhood Publishing Houses in Texas that makes the bold claim that there's no prophecy of the church to be found in the Old Testament. No prophecy of the church found in the Old Testament, they claim in this commentary. Friends, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is in the Old Testament. And this is where Nathan is talking to David. And the first thing David tells him is, I want to build a house for the Lord. And without questioning whether that should or shouldn't be done, Nathan basically says, go for it. Do that. God gets a hold of Nathan that night and says, I didn't tell you to tell him to build. He's not going to build it. You go back and tell David this. So what did he go back and tell David? We're now moving to the anticipation of the one true church. We've looked at the origination of it. It's in the mind of God before the world began. So says Ephesians 3.11. Now, the anticipation of the coming one true church, we want to begin tonight in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, this is what Nathan goes back and tells David in verse number 12. When thy days be fulfilled, when you've lived the last day on earth, you're going to live, and you'll sleep with your fathers. After that, what's he say he's going to do? I'll set up thy seed after thee. It's going to proceed from your flesh, he tells him. I will establish his, what What will he establish? His kingdom. A descendant of David is going to establish a kingdom, and that same descendant of David is going to build a house. Verse 13, he shall build an house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, wait a minute. Is it the house or is it the kingdom or is it both? Or are those terms interchangeably describing the same thing? He's going to build a house, establish a kingdom, establish a kingdom, build a house. And so, David, you're going to be dead and buried when this descendant does this. Some people say this has got to be Solomon because Solomon did build a house, the temple. But Solomon didn't establish a kingdom that had never been established before or file that away. We're going to see that be done by another Davidic descendant. And though Solomon was a type and what he built was a type of what was coming, who was coming, uh, there's more to be seen. And I'm going to date myself very much with this next statement. I grew up in the era of Polaroid pictures being all the rage. Polaroid pictures. You don't have to take your film and get it developed anymore. This camera, highfalutin technology of the day, will spit out a snapshot. You can watch it develop right before your very eyes. And those of you who remember anything about Polaroids, remember that the image didn't pop into view all in one fell swoop. It wasn't like a camera today that you and I can take our phone, take a picture and immediately say, no, trash that. I don't want that. I don't like that. That is not what we had back then, but it was sure fast for its time. You didn't have to drive it to a photo processing center 
And here's what I remember about the magic of Polaroid pictures. One part of the picture starting to become clearer. Oh, this part's now becoming clearer. And if you just are patient, the whole thing will pop into view eventually. There is in the Old Testament like a slowly developing Polaroid of the church is coming. The kingdom's coming, the church is coming, the house of God is coming. And here one passage sheds light on this part. David, one of your descendants is going to establish a house, build a kingdom. Now Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2, about uh, 300 years after the time of David roughly. Isaiah chapter 2 is predicting that the Lord's house is going to be established. Now remember what we saw in 2 Samuel 7, one of David's descendants would build this house. As of Isaiah chapter 2, that house was still future. Notice verse 2. It shall come to pass in the last days that what? What will come to pass in the last days? The mountain of the Lord's house. Whose house is it? The Lord's house. Shall be established. Where? In the top of the mountains. Exalted above the hills. Who's going to be invited to become a part of this household? All nations shall flow unto it. Many people shall go and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord to, watch this phrase, to the house of the God of Jacob. Whose house is it? Lord's house. What's it also called? The house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us of his ways. We'll walk in his paths. And then get get this. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's going to start in Jerusalem. Okay, now we're starting to get somewhere. We're looking for a time when one of David's descendants in the last days is going to build a house in Jerusalem that will be the Lord's house and all nations will be invited to become a part of that household and the word of the Lord will start there in Jerusalem and go forth and others will be leaving that place saying you need to come with us and also become a part of the house of the God of Jacob. Now we get to the New Testament and we see in Luke chapter 1 Luke chapter 1, Mary is given an astonishing bit of information. She's never known a man in a way that would produce a child. No, no, she hasn't. And yet the angel appears to her in Luke 1 and tells her that she's highly favored among women, blessed indeed. And then note, the Bible says in verse 31, the angel told Mary, behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb. Bring forth a son, call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give to him, are you watching? The throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob, the house of the God of Jacob, Isaiah 2, Luke 1. This Davidic descendant, Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob for how long will he reign? Forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, things that are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. The kingdom is going to have no end. What's the clause right before that say about the house of Jacob? It lasts forever. Forever equals no end. Kingdom equals house. 
house equals kingdom. Someone says, well, how do you get church out of that? Would you go with me to 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15? 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 15. And here you find a statement Paul makes to Timothy. He says, I want you to know how you ought to behave thyself in the house of God. And I'm so thankful that the inspired writer Paul then goes on to explain what the house of God is. I want you to know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is, what does the inspired apostle Paul say the house of God is? The church, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. David, when you're dead and buried, one of your descendants is going to build a house, establish a kingdom. That'll happen in the last days, Isaiah says. It'll happen in Jerusalem. All nations will be invited to become a part of that household. And so we get to the New Testament, and we see this anticipation also in the New Testament, not just in the Old Testament prophets, but in the New Testament, John the baptizer. Tell us, John the baptizer, what are you doing? I'm blazing a trail. For whom? For the one that Isaiah said was coming. I'm the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, Jehovah. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, what does John the baptizer go around preaching in the wilderness of Judea? Here's what he said in Matthew 3, 2. Repent ye, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. David, one of your descendants, is going to establish a kingdom in the last days. And you'll be dead and buried when it happens. Here's John the baptizer saying, the kingdom's coming. It's it's close. It's getting close. Next chapter, Matthew 4, verse 17. Jesus has now been baptized. He's successfully conquered every temptation that Satan sent his way. And so now what do we see him doing in verse 17 of Matthew 4? From that time, Jesus began to preach And what did he begin to preach? Saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, are you sure about that? I think I would know. Yes, I'm the son of God. So, did he ever get more specific as to when it would actually arrive? Go with me to the book of Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And here you find in Mark 9, 1, that Jesus said to them, Verily I say unto you, There be some of them that stand here. Now let's stop and slow down. This is first century time period we're reading about here. And Jesus says this. Some of the people standing here listening to me say these words right now. I mean the words Jesus was saying then. Some of them that stand here will not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come. And how will it come, Jesus? With power. Okay, you mean the kingdom is going to come during the lifetime of some of the people in the first century? Yes. So those who tell you the kingdom hasn't gotten here yet are going to have to explain either how Jesus told something that wasn't true or how we have people walking around on the earth today that are making Methuselah look like a little baby. Or there's another option. The kingdom did come during the first century lifetime of those people. And we know it did because he said it would come with power. Now, look at Luke 24. 
Luke chapter 24, and we see Jesus getting ready to go back to heaven. He's died, he's been buried, he's arisen from the grave, he's now ready to ascend, and what does he do? He gets his apostles together there on the Mount of Olives, and he says in verse 49 of Luke 24, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but Terry, you, you stay where? Now this makes perfect sense that he would tell them to stay in Jerusalem, because Isaiah said that's where it's all going to happen. He says, you apostles stay in the city of Jerusalem until what event? Until you be endued with power from on high. The kingdom will come with power. Where's the power going to come from? From on high. When did the power come? Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus nails it down for us. He tells his apostles here before he ascends, but ye shall receive power after, after what? After the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you'll be witnesses unto me. It'll start in Jerusalem, then spread to Judea, Samaria, uttermost part of the earth. And then after he'd spoken those things, that's when he ascended. So now they're waiting for the power to come from on high when the Spirit would fall upon them. Tell me, do we have any any knowledge of the exact day that the Spirit fell upon the apostles from on high. Do we have any knowledge of that, yes or no? Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they connect that back to its nearest antecedent, the apostles of verse 26 of chapter 1. They were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there's this sound from heaven, a rushing mighty wind is what it sounds like. And it fills all the house where they're sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, sat upon each of them. We've not left the apostles as the subject matter here. And verse 4, they, the apostles, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Did the power come from on high? Yes, in the form of the Holy Spirit falling upon the apostles. So, but are these the last days, and is this Jerusalem? Look at verse 5. Where are we in this chapter? Verse 5 of Acts 2, there were dwelling at Jerusalem. We're in the right place. We have the right event taking place, power coming from on high. But do we have, do we have the last days identified as being fulfilled here? Look at Acts chapter 2 and zoom in on verse number 14. Peter was standing up with the 11. Notice, not the 119 of the 120. Only the 12 received this baptism of the Holy Spirit. On this occasion, Peter, standing up with the 11, lifts up his voice and says, You men of Judea and all you that dwell at Jerusalem. The word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem, Isaiah said. And that's where we are in Acts 2. He said, no, this is not intoxication that you're seeing these apostles' ability to speak in languages they've not studied before. It's not intoxication, it's inspiration as Joel, verse 16, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I'll pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. So wait, we have the right time period. These are the last days. So we're getting close, but 
I wonder if any emphasis at all is going to be given in Acts 2 to David being dead and buried. And if there is, it would seem a little odd in one sense because David has been dead a thousand years, so why bring it up and make a big deal out of it? Unless, David, when you're dead and buried, one of your descendants is going to establish a kingdom and build me a house. It's going to happen in the last days, Isaiah said. It'll start in Jerusalem. It'll be the Lord's house. The house of God is the church of the living God, the Lord's church. And so let's see if we see any emphasis on David's death in Acts 2. Look at verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. Now, how many of the people on Pentecost were looking at each other in astonishment and saying, What? I didn't know David died. Did you know David had died? They knew he was dead. So why are the apostles making such a big emphasis on this? Watch. Therefore, being a prophet, verse 30, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, 2 Samuel 7, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up, does your Bible say Solomon here? He would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And he, seen this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ. His soul wasn't left in Hades. You know, that makes perfect sense, too, because Jesus, what did you say? Upon this rock I will build whose church? My church. Singular. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against my promise to do that, he says. I'm going to build that church. Death won't stop me. I'll rise from the dead and I'll build that church. Did he? After he goes on to elevate Christ to the right hand of the Father, notice verse 33, being by the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he shed forth what you're now seeing and hearing. And he says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, God has made the same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now I want to ask you lovingly, but very directly. Did Peter and the other apostles say, what do we want you to do? We want every head bowed right now. We want every head bowed. Is that what you read? No. You read, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why would I want to do that? For the remission of sins. Did any of them do it? Acts 2, 41 Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. Now let me ask you, is this the one true church that belongs to Christ or not? Yes or no? It is. And friends, to put this in perspective, 
Let's go up to one of them with our imagination and ask this question to show you just how foreign our religious world is today to them, how foreign it would have been to them. Now, there were sectarian groups in the first century, no question about it, uh, but there was one church that Jesus established on Pentecost. That was the one true church. There was no other. So we go up to them and we say, hey, uh, you seem so happy. Why are you so happy? My sins have been washed away, and I'm a member of the church. And we say, not we from this congregation, but in this century, knowing what we know about the religious landscape of America, we say to a person on the day of Pentecost, you're a member of the church, which denomination? Put yourself in their sandals and try to, try to fathom the which denomination are you question. Tell me, would they have understood what you meant if you asked them on the day of Pentecost, what denomination are you? No. Did they understand there was a church that belonged to Christ? Yes, they just heard all about it. And they just been added to it. It was the one true church, the church that belongs to Christ. And the presentation of that church is seen here in Acts chapter 2. We saw its origination. We saw its anticipation, its presentation. Sadly, it was followed by desecration in days and months and years to come. Desecration is to take something sacred and to treat it impiously. What happened to the doctrine of God, the apostles' doctrine given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? It was replaced slowly but surely over time with the doctrines and commandments of men. And some of them looked a lot like the actual church, but not upon closer review. Now, I'm fascinated as I was getting ready for this sermon with the idea of body doubles in Hollywood films. Body doubles. They're used all the time. But you and I are never supposed to be able to figure that out. They might be a stunt double, someone that comes in. To, you are about the same height as the actor that's uh, headlining this movie. And we're going to put you in the same identical clothing. You have about the same build. And we're going to try to make sure that the camera work is, is such that no one can really zoom in and see. That though you look a lot like the actual real actor, you're just a body double masquerading as him. You're not really him upon closer review. Friends, are there any body doubles in the religious world today that look in some ways like the church you read about in the New Testament, but upon closer review you say, oh, wait a minute, there's a major difference right there. Yeah. Well, that's where restoration comes in. The idea of restoring the one true church was never to start a new one and listen Alexander Campbell is not the founder of the church of Christ. Make that clear in your minds. He only realized, hey, wait a minute, the church I've been a member of is, is not the one that I'm reading about in the New Testament. I need to get back to being like the ones that we read about in the New Testament, the one that we read about in the New Testament. And so I'm going to start restoring things back to the way they were in the first century and following that pattern to the best of my ability, our ability.
And they were studying themselves out of a lot of error. But they had the template and all they had to do was follow it. And when they did, they didn't start a new church. They started, they restored a church that had already started in Acts 2. And the location of that I'm going to talk to you about in our invitation. But I do want to say this as I close. This little girl is walking home, excuse me, walking from her home to the church services with her daddy. When she hears the church bells ringing across town where her mama goes. Now next Sunday, this little girl will be with mama going to her church, the one she grew up in. But this Sunday, it's daddy's turn to take her to his church, the one he grew up going to. And she'll be yo-yoed back and forth like that every Sunday from now on. And so having heard the bells where her mom attends, she missed her mother so. And she said, Daddy, can I ask you something? You can ask me anything, honey. Does God do all things for the best? Wow, what a grown-up question. Does God do all things for the best? Absolutely, yes, he does. Yes. Watch this little girl. Daddy, if that's true, if God does all things for the best, why didn't he just make one church so you and me and mama could all go together? He did. And man came along and messed it up. But the good news is, we can still find it when we follow this book. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. There is one true church. And you will be a member of it when you and I follow the one true pattern that shows us how to get into that church. And during the invitation, we'll talk about that location. Thank you very much. Location, location, location. We've heard that before and how important location is. It is very important when it comes to being located in the one true church. And to prepare us very briefly for this very brief invitation, I want to set aside something that I think a lot of people struggle with today, and that is that God could ever confine salvation to just one location. But let me ask you a question. If you read the Bible at all, do you ever see God confining salvation to just one place, yes or no? Let's talk about the ark, Noah's ark. Tell me how many places was it possible for a man to be saved from the flood that was coming in Noah's day? How many places were possible for salvation when the flood came? Tell me. Just one. Who designed it that way? If the people had come up to Noah and said, Noah, are you saying that only you and the people aboard that boat are going to be saved from this flood? Is that really what you're saying? Tell me, what would the right answer have been? 
The wrong answer would have been for him to say, you know, that does sound so narrow-minded and I don't want to be narrow-minded and called that. And so I'm going to propose maybe there are other ways. Did Noah have the authority to ponder other ways for salvation or did he have the obligation to point to the one designated safe place that God gave the people? And that's that ark. There was one place for salvation in the days of Noah's flood. Let me ask you, when the tenth plague hit, did location matter? If someone was in a home without the blood of a lamb properly applied to the door, as instructed in Exodus 12, would they have been just as safe from the tenth plague as one who was in a house where the blood of a lamb was properly applied? And the answer is obviously no. How many plans of salvation were there to spare the firstborn during the tenth plague? How many plans of salvation? There was only one way that a firstborn could be spared, and that is if he was in a house that was marked by the blood, that was properly applied from an approved lamb and applied at the right place at the right time. That is the way God said to do it. He didn't leave it uh, fuzzy and hard to understand. And guess what? Exodus twelve twenty eight. The children of Israel went away and did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. Interesting. Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So did he. Genesis six twenty two. Can you do what God says do in the way God says do it? Yes. He sometimes gives only one way. And then finally, let's take the church itself. If someone asks me about whether one must be a member of the church of Christ in order to be saved, the first thing I want to make sure they understand is what is meant by the term church of Christ. It is the church that was started in Acts 2 that Christ is the builder and purchaser of with his own blood. So does one have to be a member of the church of Christ in order to be saved? Here's how I've gotten in the habit of answering that for whatever help it might offer to someone. I'm grateful, but it's not the only way to do it. It's just one way that's worked well for me. I say to them this. I would not uh, presume to give you my uninspired answer to that question because I'm not going to be your judge on the day of judgment. But if you'll look at three verses of scripture with me, an inspired man can answer your question much better than I can as an uninspired man. If they're not willing to look at three quick verses of scripture, I'm probably not going to reach them anyway. But if they're willing to look, then it's as simple as this. Go to Ephesians 5.23. Ephesians 5.23. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of something. According to Ephesians 5.23, what is Jesus the savior of? The body. So imagine that this represents the body of Christ. Inside this body, there is salvation to be found because he's the savior of the body. Anyone in the body is in that which he's the savior of. Well, how many of those bodies are there anyway? Second verse, Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body, just one. Okay, so if I'm out here and this is the one body, 
Where do I need to be to be among those that Jesus will save? I need to be in the one body that he's the head of and the Savior of. And so what is that body? Here's your last verse, Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23. God has put all things under his feet, that's Christ, gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. Now, just imagine in the chalkboard of your mind the following. I've got the body of Christ drawn here, and right above this circle, we've put the words body of Christ. We've got a man outside of the body of Christ. Question, if Jesus is the Savior of the body, does this man need to be in the body of Christ to be saved? Yes. How many are there? And what is that body also known as? Chapter 1, 22 and 23. The body is the church. So wait a minute. If I erase the word body and put the word church there, does this man have to be a member of the church that belongs to Christ to be saved? Yes. And friends, I'll say this as I close and give heaven's invitation. I'll never forget a couple at our home in April 25 plus years ago now saying, wait, 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 go back. She said, if I just heard you correctly, you're not trying to get me and my husband to leave our denomination we've grown up in to join your denomination you've grown up in because yours is better. You're asking us to become members of the same church of Christ the people in Acts 2 became members of. That's the church of Christ you're trying to get us into. And what would you have said? I said, yes, that's the only church I want to be a part of. It's the one that started right here. She said, shall we go to the pond? They had a pond on their property, and they wanted to be baptized that night. They were baptized that night, and they're still faithful Christians to this day, and their children are too. It's a wonderful thing. And so the, the opportunity tonight is yours to be a member of the same blood-bought church that belongs to Christ that the people on Pentecost were added to and that every saved person has been added to ever since. It's the church that belongs to Christ. And if you're here tonight and you'd like to become a member of it by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized for the remission of sins as the book of Acts teaches they did to do that in the first century, then we'd love to take the time to see you do that. And if you're already someone who's done that, but you've wandered and you're out of the house of safety and you need to get back, you need to come back with, without delay before it's everlastingly too late. Get in the one location where salvation will be yours as together we stand and sing, won't you please come to Jesus? We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.